Hey, Tanya, thanks for coming on the show again. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. We're going to be talking about what the White House is trying to do to crack down on data brokers, which is a subject you've been tracking quite closely for a while now. But first, I want to know about your own personal journey to remove yourself from the Internet. How is that going? So it's definitely been a journey. I think the one thing that's really become clear to me in the past year that I've undertaken this task of trying to get all my data removed from the internet is that it really is a game of whack-a-mole, which you hear experts say a lot. But in this case, I'm paying for a service to take down this information. So each quarter I get a report saying they've taken down, you know, dozens of pieces of my information across the web. And I get a report the next quarter saying some of that information has popped back up. And on one hand, it might seem like, well, what is the service doing? But on the other hand, these data brokers are just very aggressive in relisting this data. And so it really is a full-time job or a full-time service to get it removed. And I think the bottom line is we can't possibly expect Americans to figure out where all their data is going all the time. And and we'll talk a little bit about why this is such an issue to have this personal information out there. But yeah, it's, it's been quite the journey. So are you going to re-up the service or not? I think I am. Yeah. So we'll talk about why you're doing that. We're going to talk about this effort at the White House now looking at the data broker issue. And then we'll have an interview with Elias and Chris Inglis, the former National Cyber Director for the United States. Welcome to Safe Mode. I'm Mike Farrell, Editor-in-Chief at CyberScoop. Every week, we break down the most pressing issues in technology, provide you the knowledge and the tools to stay ahead of the latest threats, and take you behind the scenes of the biggest stories in cybersecurity. This episode is brought to you by Google Cloud. An attack is coming. It's about keeping us safe. He's just a disgruntled hacker. She's a super hacker. Stay alert. Stay safe. Stay safe. This is Safe Mode. So Tanya Riley, you're a privacy reporter here at CyberScoop. You've been writing about data brokers for quite some time the issues around them, how they are becoming, in some experts' point of view, increasingly problematic. They're also increasingly lucrative. They are a fact of life for anybody on the internet, for the sort of modern digital economy that we have. Were you surprised to hear that the White House is taking up this issue? I was a little bit. I mean, we've definitely seen the Biden administration take increasing interest in Americans' privacy. It's been a part of the past two State of the Unions. But I would say this is the first time we've seen the White House explicitly address something like data brokers. And the way they did this is through this roundtable on Tuesday, where they invited the Federal Trade Commission, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, and the Office of Science and Technology Policy to meet with different consumer advocate groups to talk about some of these concerns that a lot of these groups have been raising for years, which is that these data brokers are trafficking in very sensitive information. So we're talking about mental health history, geolocation data, and the wide range of harms that can come from that. So for instance, if you have someone's geolocation data and they were near an abortion clinic, you could potentially tie that back to them in some of these states where abortion is being criminalized. Or even we've seen concerns from members of Congress For instance, that foreign adversaries like China could be buying information about American soldiers. So there are just a wide range of concerns here. And that's what the White House was trying to do with this meeting is get people together to talk about those. 
Now, are you hopeful that any kind of concrete results will come out of this? Are we talking about potential regulation, limitations on the data that can be gathered, how it can be sold? What do you think will materialize from this the meeting that happened this week? Well, one concrete proposal we've already seen from the CFPB, which was one of the leading agencies at this event, is on Tuesday they announced that they're issuing proposed rules that would bar certain data brokers from using or selling data for purposes other than those authorized under what is called the Fair Credit Reporting Act. So basically what happens is data brokers buy a lot of personal information from their credit bureaus, so things like individuals' names, aliases, birth date, social security number, we're talking about the works. And traditionally, that kind of information has been used for stuff like job applications and, and, you know, background checks. And the CFPB is saying, you know, that's fine. But what we don't want you using that information for is things like targeted ads or training AI. So those proposals really crack down on how data brokers are using that information. And that's kind of following up on a report that the CFPB did earlier this year, finding that a lot of times data brokers are taking this information from consumers who are in financial distress and using that to target them with things like predatory debt products, you know, payday loans, those kind of things. And so essentially the CFPB is saying, hey, like this is a violation of the spirit of the law. We need to update things to make sure we're taking into account how these data brokers are acting. And so who are we talking about? What are the names of some of these companies? I mean, Experian, it's kind of both, you know, they are one of the credit bureaus. So Experian, LexisNexis um, are kind of the big players that we've seen particularly lobbying around this. But there are also just a bunch of smaller companies whose names aren't household names that are doing this. So one would be this group called Kachava that the FTC sued last year for allegedly sharing information around people's visits to abortion clinics and a whole bunch of other random players that just don't get a lot of attention but are out here selling and profiting off of American data. Now, is there any upside to all of this? This surveillance economy, I mean, certainly if you are in law enforcement, you're an investigator, you want to get information on somebody there, there's a service, right? That because law enforcement has been using some of these data brokers, right, as part of investigations. They have, and that's come with controversy of its own. You know, a lot of civil liberties groups and even lawmakers would say that by purchasing this information instead of getting a warrant for it, you're violating the Fourth Amendment. And we saw the House Judiciary Committee um, just a few weeks ago pass out legislation that would prevent data brokers from selling that kind of information to law enforcement and federal agencies, which was a really big step showing how Congress wants to crack down on data brokers. So as a consumer, right, if we're worried about our data being bought and sold, what do we do? I mean, one step is you can email the companies asking them to remove your data, which, as we talked about, is is quite the hurdle. The other thing is you can purchase a service to get your information delisted. That can be really expensive. It's not a perfect solution. And I guess the other thing you could do is contact your members of Congress and ask them when in the heck they're going to pass privacy legislation. Because it's hard, right? I mean, if you want to participate in social media, if you want to shop on Amazon, if you want to search the internet, if you want to participate in modern society, right? One of the byproducts of that is that your data is being collected everywhere you go. I mean, I guess you could just stop using the internet. I mean, I think the argument is that just because that data is being collected doesn't mean it 
needs to be shared with third parties. And in fact, in most cases, that's not appropriate. And then the other line of thinking we see from privacy experts and some lawmakers is, right, like maybe these companies are just collecting a little too much data and that they should be a little more focused in what they're collecting. Data is money for these companies, but that doesn't mean they need to be collecting every ounce of data they can. Are the platforms themselves considered data brokers? I mean, is Meta X now, formerly Twitter, some of the other social media also sort of engaged in this, you know, what's been dubbed the surveillance economy? I mean, they certainly use data to their advantages, particularly things like targeted advertising, which is where a lot of this data becomes lucrative. They're not data brokers in the traditional sense, but they are certainly collecting these massive amounts of data, oftentimes from third parties, from apps, from different web pages that they put their trackers on to do things like targeted advertising, which is one of the concerns, right? The concerns is that these companies are using sensitive information like your your health history, your geolocation to target you with ads that may be inappropriate or are just not things that we want these companies to be doing. Well, I know you'll be following this issue for a while. You'll be following up to see what does happen from this White House roundtable and whether or not there is any movement on privacy legislation happening in Congress. So thanks for that update, Tanya. Thanks. CyberScoop senior editor Elias Grohl recently traveled to the cybersecurity conference in Las Vegas called Black Hat. While he was there, he had a chance to sit down with Chris Inglis, who's the former national cyber director. Chris and Elias chatted about the national cybersecurity strategy, some of the recent big hacks involving Microsoft and what we can all look forward to as the national cybersecurity strategy becomes implemented. It's a fascinating interview with one of the leading voices on cybersecurity coming up. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Google. Do you want to protect your agency and data from the most sophisticated cyber attacks? Visit cloud.google.com security to access resources and expertise to get started today. Well, we're here at Black Hat. Chris Inglis, thank you so much for coming on the show. Pleasure to be with you. It's great to be here on the showroom floor. And we're going to talk through some of your recent work. I thought we'd start by talking a little bit about the National Cyber Strategy, which was received to great acclaim. And one of the big things that it makes the case for is shifting liability for software makers, which has been this third rail in cyber policy for the last 20 years, maybe even 30 years. Folks have been talking about doing this. Every time it gets proposed, the software industry is up in arms and says that this is going to destroy our industry. And U.S. government has, generally speaking, shied away from taking on that fight. And now in the strategy, you want to take on this fight. Can you talk a little bit about how you arrived at that point of wanting to do that? Well, I'd start with Winston Churchill quote. He once said about the Americans, you can trust that they'll do the right thing after they've done everything else. And I think we've tried everything else. We, we tried to actually let cyber sort itself out that um, through self-enlightenment and market forces, both of which are useful and powerful to essentially have them account, not just for innovation and efficiency, which is important in technology, but to have them also account for safety and resilience. And they, to some degree, will deliver some of that, but not all of that, not what's required. 
And so at the beginning of the development of the National Cybersecurity Strategy, the one that was released in March of this year, we set out for ourselves a broad engagement strategy to solicit from all the stakeholders, not just the federal stakeholders, but the private sector, the think tanks, academia, policy think tanks, seek from them what was missing in the strategy either that was practically being implemented or the strategies that came before. And all of them spoke to the need for some degree of certainty, some degree of purposefulness, and how do we create resilience and robustness in the underlying infrastructure that is cyberspace? Having said that, the focus on uh, regulations that might bear on technology or its deployment is only a small part of the overall strategy. And even then, it's only a small part of what actually makes up cyberspace. We need to think just as hard about allocating roles and responsibilities across the entirety of the ecosystem, not just to the operators who are left holding the bag, but to everyone who develops, who innovates, who deploys, sustains that, what are their responsibilities, not just the qualities of the technology they build, and how do we get people in the right place? So I was greatly gratified to see the administration follow through on an education strategy released about two weeks ago, which is a necessary complement to the larger national cybersecurity strategy. Were there any incidents or any series of incidents that really drove that embrace of the desire for software liability reform? Was there anything specific where you're looking out at the cyber landscape and there's breaches happening and maybe disappointing security practices and saying, you know what, enough is enough. If this is how companies are going to behave, then they need to be subject to liability reform. So it's a great question. And I think that we can look broadly across the landscape of the last few years and kind of think of any number of incidents that framed our thinking of where we were and where we must go. I would suggest that there might be dozens that come to mind, but um, having reached into that grab bag in the moment that you've just described, I pick out four. I can still remember with great clarity in the spring of 2017, the summer of 2017, Petya and WannaCry in reverse order. Both of those were perpetrated by nation states. WannaCry was the North Koreans, not Petya was the Russians. And what I learned from that, and I think many others might have taken from that, was that you didn't need to be the target to be the victim, that we were all in this kind of this larger scrum and that the splash zone was bigger than we had imagined. And that the absence of resilience and kind of uh, robustness in the infrastructures that we broadly depended on afflicted all of us. And therefore, many of us could not defend ourselves kind of individually. We had to depend upon some larger ecosystem that took this to heart, to task, and then did something about it. More recently, um, kind of we would remember the solar winds incident and the colonial pipeline incident about the time that I was gearing up to be the national cyber director. And in the former case, solar winds, I think that was a doctrinal failure, meaning that when you asked people after that event, who was accountable to make sure that the Russian government didn't find and, and exploit a weakness in that supply chain? A lot of finger pointing at the moment, you know, which was, well, the kind of the folks at SolarWind, they were focused on delivering the primary features of that product and assumed that at some point downstream, that those features would be added or accounted for. Everyone who was essentially adding some kind of attributes in that supply chain was thinking about, you know, the observable attribute, but not the inherent resilience and robustness, presuming that it had been put in. And the customers had to assume that it had been done upstream. At the end of the day, the Russians didn't have to exploit some technology flaw. They just walked right through the front door. That's a doctrinal failure. 
we hadn't actually allocated a sense of responsibility for who would build this resilience in, who would sustain that resilience, and what's the role then of the end user to perhaps use that resilience or sustain that with the kind of the addition of their own activities. That's a doctrinal kind of issue. And we have to first think about how do we get those roles and responsibilities right? How do we get people into the right place so that they understand what the expectations of them are, whether you're an individual at the end of that supply chain or somebody that's perhaps populating that supply chain upstream? And then we can bend technology to that purpose. That ultimately leads you to resilience that's in doctrine, resilience in people, and resilience in technology. But I would suggest that it has to be done in that order. And when I think of the national cybersecurity strategy, I think of it having delivered that. How do we get the doctrine right? How do we get people in the right place? And how do we bend technology to our purpose? Not leaving behind innovation and efficiency. Those are important. But binding kind of to those first two necessary attributes, this concept of safety, safety built in. We've done that for cars. We've done that for airplanes. We've done that for drugs. And all of those are not devices that stand on their own, but they actually operate within a larger system of governance and expectations where from users to providers and everything in between, we all know what we're supposed to contribute and we do or we pay the price. Okay. Speaking of breaches, I, I want to talk to you a little bit about a recent one affecting Microsoft. Encryption key was stolen from Microsoft, used by Chinese hackers, or at least hackers based in China is the description we've, we've gotten so far. And it was used to forge authentication tokens that were then used to access emails belonging to senior U.S. officials. Wondering if you can put on kind of your former national cyber director hat. What does that breach look like from your seat? What do you think the implications are? And what are, do you think are the policy implications of a company like Microsoft having an encryption key stolen? We don't have to be a national cyber director to see the implications of something like that. They're, they're significant. I think many of the systems that we rely on, whether they are automobiles or airplanes or cyber systems, digital infrastructure, have critical components. And those critical components, kind of while perhaps small in number, have a disproportionate effect on the performance, the operation of the system. An encryption key, whether it's in the hands of Microsoft or the National Security Agency or anyone in between, is one of those kind of small components that has a disproportionate high leverage effect kind of if, if its security, if its safety is compromised. And so therefore, those are the things that we need to double down on protecting all the more. And I don't think you do that in a singular way. You do that with belts and suspenders and Velcro. You make it such that it is a system that is difficult to penetrate. You make it such that you actually imagine the possibility that it might be penetrated. So therefore, you're on the front balls of your feet understanding how would I sense that that penetration has occurred? How would I in the wild sense that that penetration has been leveraged? And if you're doing those three things, then you're in a defensible enterprise that is then well defended. And with your degree of agility and your audacity of purpose, you'll, you'll be fine. Um, but there's no such thing as a secure system. And for kind of the people who might raise their hands in shock and dismay and say, you know, once again, someone has failed to build and operate a perfectly secure system. It's the nature of the world. It's the nature of reality. Um, we need to create defensible systems, actually defend them and do, those, and do so with the largest collaboration in mind so that we're not each defending some independent patch. We're not creating critical elements that only one person or one organization is defending such that if that goes down, we all go with it. Yeah, there's some voices that are now starting to argue that maybe the U.S. government is overly dependent on Microsoft, that 
the reliance on Microsoft products is turning into something of a monoculture. What do you think of that? Well, I think that Microsoft is a bit of a stovepipe in terms of the delivery of a deep and sharp capability and in, in the various services that they offer. And that's a feature at the end of the day that we can have confidence that if I deploy that anywhere in my enterprise, it's going to work about the same and the training costs go down and the leverage goes up. You might describe the United States Army, United States Air Force, and other kind of elements that are stovepipes in the same way. The question is whether you employ that in a way that you use the diversity of other offerings and you then take advantage of that diversity to be full-featured and robust in the application of that innovation that occurs in the software and hardware industry. So I'm not unduly concerned that I rely to the degree that I might on a Microsoft or an Amazon or an Oracle. I do want to make sure that I have confidence that they have invested in the resilience and robustness, that I have an opportunity to understand how they sustain that, and that I have an opportunity to participate in that. But having understood that I've taken a big bet about my broad application of a particular system, I want to know that that's actually a fair bet and complement that with some recovery and response options. So I'm not unduly concerned. I just think it's the nature of the beast. When you look back on the national cyber strategy, was there anything that was left out that you wish had been in the, in the document? I wished we, and I think this was not a regret looking over the shoulder, but an, an, an observation in the moment. I wish we'd have been able to do more about the cyber insurance kind of issue, which is that insurance in so many other domains of interest has added extraordinary value, both in helping to better characterize in an objective fashion what the nature of risk is, and having understood that, then kind of applying measures to bring that risk down, not simply transfer it from one party to another, but to install systemic ways to bring that risk down. And I think that there is an opportunity in the cyber realm to do something along those lines. At the end of the day, we succeeded in getting a mention of it. There is then kind of something that might be greatly expanded in terms of understanding that. The government's role is small, important, but small in that I think that there is more work to be done. I think that broadly, if I hear a complaint about the national cybersecurity strategy, it's the opposite of what that question implies, which is that I have heard some describe it as, you know, everything, everywhere, all at once, right? That, it, that it's all in there. And I think that represents the deficit that we've had doctrinally over the last 10, 15 years, especially in other strategies, which were good in their day. And this was built on the foundation established by those strategies. But to the extent that we left anything out of its significant nature, most of them were touched on. Some of them could have be expanded. Insurance comes foremost to mind. I mean, several of the components in the strategy, they're going to need congressional action. How do you read the politics of the U.S. Congress right now in implementing something like software liability reform? We're in the best of times, the worst of times, of course. The best of times is cyber remains a nonpartisan, bipartisan issue. And I think the Congress has been quite thoughtful about extending authorities and resources to the federal government and broadly to the private sector in the form of the CHIPS Act and the Infrastructure Act. The $1.2 trillion is not an opportunity to simply upgrade physical infrastructure, but in so doing to attend to the cyber characteristics underneath. So the Congress has been in the right place for all the divisiveness that might exist on other issues. But my kind of sense of that question, kind of standing back in the broader sense is, I'm not sure, well, I am sure, I'm confident we've not used all the authorities we already have, right? Whether that's what individuals can do, what organizations can do, private sector organizations 
what federal entities can do. We've not actually exercised all of that enough yet. There is a certain degree of ambivalence, proactive ambivalence. And people who would look at this to say somebody should do something about this, not realizing that they have a part to play. And so we need to make sure that we push the awareness and the education to get everybody's head in the game. Take advantage then of the self-enlightenment that kind of ensues. Take advantage of market forces that then ensue. And then what will be left is a smaller but still large problem of what do we then kind of make sure we get done because we specify it either by regulation or by statute, allocating other authority or resource to those places that market forces and self-enlightenment didn't take care of. But we've got a lot of work to do across that continuum before we get to a place where we say we are stalled because either a Congress or an executive branch entity has failed to act. What do you think of the institutional design of ONCD having led the Office of the National Cyber Director and authored this strategy? What do you think is working with the ONCD? What's not? So with respect to the, uh, the Office of the National Cyber Director, which I'll kind of summarize as ONCD from this point, moment forward, I'm not impartial on the matter, but I think I'm fair-minded. You know, I was, of course, on the Solarium Commission, which recommended the creation of the Office of the National Cyber Director. And the principal reason wasn't to add another vertical, another force contending for oxygen or authority in an already crowded room, but rather to add context, uh, perhaps the fabric within which the threads and the gems and the beads and the baubles then would have a home, that they would make sense. One of the principal complaints we heard in the Solarian Commission, what I heard as the National Cyber Director, was the absence of coherence across all of the peace parts. That for any number of kind of issues that might exist, regulation comes to mind, that people would say, you know, there's plenty of that particular issue kind of in the world, but I don't know where to go to get the single answer on what the federal government's theory of the case is or to get some point of influence that would perhaps bring coherence into being across all of them. So the existence of the Office of the National Cyber Director was imagined to kind of add coherence to that system. As I was the National Cyber Director and alongside a really terrific team, not just inside that office, but partners across the federal government, the purpose of the power for the ONCD was to add value to the system, to add coherence to the system, to add leverage to the parts. I'll just give you one case in point. When I got to the White House, you know, one of the first fights I was expecting to pick was with the Office of Management and Budget, which was the traditional home of the Chief Information Security Officer for the federal government, Krista Russia specifically at the time I got there. Um, if you read the statute that kind of created the Office of the National Cyber Director, you might imagine that that would be properly hosted within the Office of the National Cyber Director. And that by extension, all of the federal CISOs and 150 or more federal agencies and departments would come along for the ride. But turns out that the work that had been done by OMB across the years and by Chris DeRusha and his team more recently was actually good and making the difference intended. And the hosting within the Office of Management and Budget, alongside a lot of other policy functions and resourcing functions, to my view, seemed to be a good thing. So what we did together was to figure out how do we align what the office management does with what the ONCD would do. And we therefore created uh, Chris DeRusha, the federal CISO, as a deputy national cyber director for purposes of federal cybersecurity. Not trying to encroach upon what OMB did, but adding additional authority to it, additional resource to it, so that one plus one might equal three. From most of the sides that I've heard from, and people did not kind of hold back their opinions during my time as a national cyber director, 
that seemed to have been a good choice, one that actually kind of made some positive contributions to the coherence of the overall system. And we need to actually find ways to do that in every other place we can. Look, in the time of a crisis, you need to know who's at point center. But in the day-to-day bump and grind that is the daily kind of life of someone in cyberspace or sustaining, kind of equipping, innovating in cyberspace, they need to know how do we use all the talents, all the authorities in that, and with some degree of informed coherence, where we're lying abreast more than we're aligned in a vertical. And to say that one more thing, which is that the private sector plays a huge role in all of this. And you will never subordinate the private sector to the public sector kind of in the way that you might in the time of a crisis, say a wartime crisis or a kind of a, t- a counterterrorism issue. You're going to have to actually equip the private sector. You're going to have to put the public sector in a place where it provides proactive supporting kind of activity to make the private sector more successful, but yet still autonomous and still able to find its own way forward based upon its own instincts. That's a horizontal, not a vertical. And we tried to apply that broadly across what the ONCD did. It's here to stay. It's defined by statute. I don't think I see anything in the near term that would reverse that statute. So the question of the moment is, now that the NCD has deployed on behalf of the federal government and the nation a national cybersecurity strategy and an implementation strategy and a workforce education strategy, how does it continue to mobilize all of those resources in a way that facilitates that forward progress, not dictates that forward progress? You mentioned that folks didn't hold back their opinions during your time as National Cyber Director. You know, we've all seen the headlines about personality conflicts between the various folks and the cyber team. Wondering if you could comment a little bit about the division of power between ONCD, NSC, CISA, and also curious if you wanted to speak to some of those reports about personality conflicts that played out in the administration. Yeah, so first I would say that when you take a look at the distinguished center of any one of those organizations, let's take the three that you just mentioned. Maybe I'll throw OMB, the Office Management and Budget, in as a fourth. But you've got CISA over at the Department of Homeland Security. You've got the National Security Council. And then you've got the Office of the National Cyber Director. They all do have distinguished centers. They all have responsibilities that when you kind of go down to that fundamental core of what you're asking them to do, that are distinguished. They don't have a great intersection in as much as they all contribute some value to the larger cyber ecosystem. Of course, they have overlaps, but they complement one another more than they compete with one another. And the job of the people leading those organizations is to find that complementary role as opposed to compete either for time and attention in a microphone or perhaps for the authority that might be invested in them by some kind of distant force, whether that's the Congress or the executive branch. And during my time there, that was the principal modus operandi. How do we find those areas where we complement one another? We may have heard Jen Easterly and I, when we were both in the job, she remains in the job, talk often about CISO was the -the on-the-field entity that was essentially responsible for the nation's, the federal cybersecurity work, that she was the -the on-the-field quarterback, and that the Office of the National Cyber Director and the National Cyber Director specifically would be the coach ensuring that there was a game plan, ensuring that the roles of the various players on the field was understood and that they were complementary. And then if the game went poorly, then that coach would be expected to perhaps assess what was going wrong, have to perhaps reestablish an assignment of roles and responsibilities, provide support to the on-field players, as opposed to stepping on the field, grabbing the ball, and kind of trying to run a play. And I think we did that to a large degree successfully. 
coach and quarterback. Similarly, with respect to the National Security Council, National Security Council wields the various instruments of national power that a federal enterprise, the U.S. government, can bring to bear, not just cyber, but the legal remedies, the financial remedies, diplomatic remedies, the military remedies, all of that is the stock and trade of what the National Security Council has to rationalize, reconcile, and apply. Cyber cannot be extracted from that and kind of live in its own domain, its own vertical, because it is an instrument of power, but one of many instruments of power must be affected, applied in a complementary fashion. That's properly the role of the NSC. But in terms of establishing the long game, establishing the strategy, getting the roles and responsibilities right within the realm of cyber, I think that's an appropriate center of gravity for the National Cyber Director. On our best days, we got that exactly right. On our worst days, we perhaps strayed and bumped into one another. But the American people, the citizens served by the federal enterprise should expect that those leaders would sort that out. And we did. The National Cybersecurity Strategy, which to your point, has been largely affirmed, if not acclaimed, is a representation of what a federal enterprise working with the private sector can deliver as a blueprint for what we might do together, right? And I think that the federal bureaucracy is not accepted from that. It's right in the middle of that. Wondering if you might be interested in commenting on the, the new ONCD director who's coming in shortly. Uh, Harry Coker? Harry Coker, exactly. Yes, so I, I've known Harry Coker probably for 15, 20 years. He's a graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy. My brother was one of his classmates, and so we had met many, many years ago through that connection. I've known Harry as he's gone through his various roles at the Central Intelligence Agency, as he was the executive director at the National Security Agency. I have a high degree of respect for his, his understanding of cyber for his ability to get the various dimensions, not just the technology aspects, but the dimensions of policy and the roles and responsibilities that are, again, more horizontal than vertical. So I think he's a good choice for that. He's also a good leader, which is a really important piece of this. How does he then inspire the best efforts of the larger bureaucracies that are in this space? How does he inspire the Office of the National Cyber Director to achieve what it must against stiff odds? But I think it can, I think it will. I like Harry. I think he's a good choice. And so I will support him. I do support him going forward. Okay. Wondering if you might look forward a little bit and look forward to the upcoming presidential election, which will undoubtedly be a controversial one, one in which one of the leading candidates might dispute the outcome and might shed doubt on the integrity of the U.S. election system and might suggest that it's been hacked or that there are information operations happening, perhaps against him, and that his supporters were, were duped. There's any number of scenarios that we might spin out. I'm curious how you're thinking about the upcoming election, and if you have any advice to your former colleagues in government as to how they should be approaching it. Yeah, that, that is a really important question. I won't dodge it, but let me actually kind of sneak up on it. So I think that when you think about, you know, our lifespan in cyber dating back 40, 50 years, you might think of it in, in terms of the waves of what was under assault, what was under attack. In the first wave, say back in the 1980s, early 90s, data and the performance of systems clearly under some degree of assault. Um, and we therefore coined the terms of confidentiality, integrity, availability, as the things to be defended, and we worked hard to deliver those three properties. The second wave realized that the data and the systems are only useful in as much as they deliver something. 
And typically, those systems are abstracted into the delivery of functions of interest, sometimes critical functions, the delivery of my ability to do online banking, the delivery of my ability to reach into a supply chain and kind of manipulate it, deal with it in ways that I can never physically get my arms around. But using digital infrastructure, I can be a global enterprise, the ability to conduct an election. All of those things are that second level, and they're under assault broadly by transgressors. In the case of the one that I mentioned last, the election system, I think you can imagine that the Russians will likely make another play against that. Perhaps others will do so as well. And we have to worry not just about the confidentiality, the integrity, the availability of the first level data and systems. We have to worry about whether the coalition that delivers critical functions in our society In the case of an election, that's the states and the local entities. They're the ones who deliver those elections. Whether they understand the kind of the attacks that might be made at that level, whether they then hold together and understanding what that collective broad threat might be, are able to mount a defense such that a Russian entity would have to beat all of them to be one of them. So if you're going to actually defend a collaboration, which is how critical functions get done in our society, you have to be a collaboration. You have to actually collaborate in the defense. But the third level is the one really that you've mentioned, and I think the one that's hardest, which is an attack on confidence that those kind of systems will deliver an appropriate result. I think that when I look back on 2016, 18, 20, and so forth, um, think about the Russians. I think what they were really trying to do is to get us to have some doubt as to whether the free and fair election system that we describe is in fact delivering an appropriate result, the right result in a free and open society for whether perhaps somehow those first two levels having been kind of exploited, corrupted, that we should doubt on January 21st of that kind of every fourth year that the right person stands at the podium. We cannot deliver that confidence if we don't get those first two levels right. So my advice to anybody who's in harness at the moment, make sure we get those first two levels right. Focus on confidentiality, integrity, availability of the foundations of cyberspace. Focus on the collaborations that deliver, defend, sustain the delivery of critical functions so that you create a level playing field in which that third fight takes place. That fight that's a fight over confidence about what's happening in the moment. That fight in a political system is necessarily one where contending ideas, sometimes ideas that look like they're broad conflict, are hurled back and forth. We trust our citizens can register their votes in a system that has a solid underpinning in those first two levels. That system will properly record those votes and and bring those votes back such that we can look at the scoreboard and see where we are. But we cannot afford to stand in and perhaps begin to modulate the content that occurs at that third level. We're going to win that on ideas, but we have to win it on a solid underpinning of a cyber infrastructure. So the job of the cyber experts, get the first two levels right get the foundations right, get the collaboration right, make it such that if you're going to contend with the integrity of that, you got to beat all of us to beat one of us, and then let the free and fair contention of ideas take place on top of that, and we'll be fine. That's what democracies do. When you think about how states are behaving in cyberspace, and we look out towards the future, what do you think the future of state behavior in cyberspace looks like? That's a good question. I think that cyber is increasingly recognized as an instrument of power. I'd earlier said that it's but one of many instruments of power, but it's in play. Um, It is no longer a silo unto itself where the use of cyber is only to achieve things that show up in cyber. 
You can use cyber to influence confidence. You can use cyber to achieve physical effects in nation states intending to pursue their geopolitical aims can be expected to use that, not just for surveillance or for intelligence purposes to understand what the intentions of other parties in that space might be, but to create effects. And we have to understand that. We have to make sure that we defend ourselves against that. The hardest part will be to defend our confidence that in a free and open system, that these systems are working as we'd intended, but it can be done and we should devote ourselves to that. Whether those systems are then used to go further, which is to hold us, hold our critical systems, hold our national security at risk in something short of an actual conflict above the use of force, that's really the question of the moment. Recently, we saw broadly described the Chinese government's insertion of malware into critical infrastructure in places like Thuaf. That's problematic for a lot of reasons, not least of which is it crosses, in my view, an absolute threshold. But it's also problematic in that it's short of the use of force, where we would know exactly what to do if somebody kind of applied tactical force and brought direct risk to health and life and safety. But it's certainly above what might be constituted as normal behavior in this time that we would otherwise say is a time of absence of conflict, a peaceful time where we might be competitors, but we shouldn't be holding each other at physical risk. So what do you do in that space? I think first and foremost, you have to make sure that you attend to your knitting, that you get your resilient architecture in place so that you're a harder target. Second, you need to deter that bad behavior through every means possible. Part of that is that you kind of say, I will catch you in the bargain and I will deal with that at the earliest possible moment using all the remedies before me. Part of that is that you kind of have a coalition that is sufficiently impressive that that party doesn't want to take that on. And part of that is that you enter into discussions with the other party so that whatever remedies they're seeking might be kind of sought in collaboration with you or partnership with you as opposed to doing it by beating on your outer shelf. But we have to take all of that before us. I think if I worry about one thing in the midst of all of that more than anything else is that all of us, no matter what nation state you're in, are sitting on top of this race of technology that is actually moving so fast that many don't even understand what it's doing or how it's doing it. And therefore, there is the opportunity for mistake in our dependence on it. And if that technology is seen as operating with our direct permission, then we'll find that someone else misinterprets our actions that we haven't taken, that technology has taken on our part and reacts accordingly. You're talking about the integration of AI into military systems? I am talking about the integration of AI. And so we, we weren't talking about generative AI, what, nine months ago, because it wasn't here. And when you hear somebody talk today about generative AI, typically in the middle of a speech of someone that knows what they're talking about, they say two weeks ago or three weeks ago, they're talking about some development that is that current, that is that consequential to the AI of the moment. And so it's moving so fast that it might well exceed our ability to control it simply because it has capabilities that we authorized yesterday that are different when it actually is executed tomorrow. And so in the middle of all of that, before I worry about the Chinese, the Russians, or others who might misuse that technology, I need to make sure that I've got a firm grip on it, that I understand what it at the moment has been authorized to do, that I have the control architecture in place to ensure that it does that, that I have something that actually is checking it to make sure that it's behaved within those kind of normal, those tolerances. 
Now, to those who would say, but that will curb to some degree its innovation, it will perhaps take off the bleeding edge of the technology development, that may well be. But we've done the same thing with nuclear technology. We've done the same thing with cars, right? We have to make sure that at any moment in time, the human remains in control of this and that we can actually take these technologies and have them employ, deploy our aspirations and not substitute for them. Do you think we're doing enough right now to institute those guardrails on how AI is being used? We're playing catch up, but I do see that at the federal government and frankly across the private sector, that there is an impressive awareness of that and some activities being undertaken to take that on. Question is whether we're so far behind and whether it's moving so fast that we can catch up. I saw a talk not long ago, so take this with a grain of salt. I believe it was from the director of the Center for Humane Technology, and, and he said something in the middle of that talk that was very striking to me. Said that for every 30 people that are pushing AI innovation of the kind that you can see and appreciate and feel, there's one person that's worried about the ethics or the control of it. That's a terrible ratio, right? And we need to make sure that we have the right number of people thinking about how I would employ this to keep human beings connected to it at the center of it so that AI is bent to our purpose as opposed to the other way around. I thought I'd close by asking to reflect on the conflict in Ukraine, which as I see it seems to be the military conflict that has integrated cyber operations to the greatest degree we've really ever seen. And I'm wondering, first off, if you agree with that assessment, and if so, what you think the lessons of that conflict are? Yeah, so I do agree that the Russians have attempted to integrate, according to their doctrine, they intended to, and I think they've attempted to, integrate cyber in a way that it is one of many instruments that they're attempting to employ, not underestimated, not overestimated in terms of its power. It's on the battlefield. And I, along with many others, but I in particular, was surprised at the failure of the Russians to be able to achieve greater effect. Delighted that they did not, but surprised that they didn't achieve greater effect, both with their physical forces on the battlefield, but to your question, the, uh, the efforts they've undertaken in cyberspace. And standing back, I have now come to the conclusion that uh, there are three things that the Ukrainians have shown us in order, in a complementary order, that I had underestimated. One, I had overestimated the importance of technology. It is important. You've got to have the right technology or at least something that approaches the right technology so that you have sufficient agility and opportunity to recover from an onslaught, to move your analytics or your data from one place to another. So technology matters. But the second part is that they've shown expertise matters more. And it turns out that they have world-class expertise in the defense of digital infrastructure. How'd they get that way? Well, the Russians were training them for eight years, right, before the war actually kicked off. Who knew that that's what the Russians were actually doing? And the third thing, which I think is perhaps most gratifying to me, because we've been talking about this for some time here, is that they showed that while technology matters, expertise matters more, doctrine matters most of all. What they've deployed is a coalition defense where the Russians have to beat a broad coalition in order to beat the one thing that they're after. They want to beat the Ukrainians, of course. They want to hold right there that nation at risk. But they have to beat Microsoft and ESEN and Cisco and Elon Musk with the provision of Starlink terminals. Now, having said that, there's a natural limit to the role of the private sector. We do not want, we cannot afford to have the private sector take on the role as co-combatants. And they have not in this case. They are merely providing within their terms of service reasonable resilience and robustness and the underlying infrastructure which the Ukrainians then defend. 
and they are not in any way, shape or form engaged in a provocation to, from or against the Russians. So I think it's the right role for the private sector. The last thing I would say is kind of after crediting the Ukrainian defense, all of which is a very pleasant surprise to see how well they've done, is that offense is harder than it looks. If you're on the Russian side of this, you have to actually have good instrumentation of the battlefield. They don't. You have to be able to synthesize, right, all of that instrumentation into a collective understanding of what's taking place on that battlefield. They're not good at that. You have to be able to assess in something approaching real time what your success in the moment is, reassess, regroup, so that you can then fire again and again and again in a campaign style. Turns out they're good at sucker punches, not Petya was a sucker punch, kind of one broad shared vulnerability that they took advantage of. They're less good at campaigns. And that's advantage to the defenders, which is, I think, as it should be. So I think defense can be, has shown itself to be the new offense, right? That we can defend ourselves in this space. It actually, in my view, gives some strength to the American cybersecurity strategy, which is let's make this space defensible across doctrine and people and technology. Let's actually defend it, but defend it in a collaboration. So you got to beat all of us to beat one of us. And let's, at the end of the day, obsess about our positive aspirations, not our negative kind of fears about threats that be weighed against us. I'll leave you with one final anecdote, but was talking with the digital minister of the Ukraine about three, well, probably now five months ago, Fedorov. And I was impressed by all of what he laid out, which I briefly described a moment ago. But at the end of that, he said something that really was striking. He said, but of course... He said, we have to actually make sure that we understand and remember what cyber is for. And I said, meaning? And he goes, well, we have to deliver the new services, the kind of efficiencies that our citizens expect. I said, like? He goes, like a digital driver's license. I said, in the middle of the war. And he goes, yes, of course, that's what cyber is for. I mean, what else do we get up in the morning and think about cyber being for, right? As opposed to defending it for its own sake, which I think is a lesson for all of us, that in the midst of whatever crises we might feel at the moment in cyberspace, We should get up in the morning and obsess about what we want to do with cyber, which is, I think, how we felt in the early 1990s, right? So we need to get back on that train again. That is not fated to be either bad or good in the future. It's a choice. And the national cybersecurity strategy, which you talked about earlier, kind of sets before us a set of choices that if we actually follow through on all of those things, we'll be in a better place. Perfect place? No. But better place, a more defensible place, which we can then defend together. Chris Inglis, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks very much for your time. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Google. Together, Mandiant with Google Cloud helps public sector organizations become more secure from cyber attacks. Visit cloud.google.com slash security for threat reports, resources, and security best practices. Thanks for listening to Safe Mode, a weekly podcast on cybersecurity and digital privacy brought to you by CyberScoop. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating and review and share it with your friends, your mom or your dad, because you know they're probably going to get hacked if you don't. To find out more information or to contact me, your host, please visit cyberscoop.com.